Last week, we celebrated the wonderful truth of Easter, that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, not just once, but on multiple occasions. John's Gospel tells us how Jesus met a small group of disciples on the beach and cooked breakfast for them. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us uh, that on another occasion, Jesus appeared to more than 500 believers at the same time. And shortly after, Jesus ascended to heaven. And very soon after that, he poured out his spirit on the church. And from that point on, the church has expanded rapidly all over the known world. With the odds stacked against them, and in the face of fierce persecution, uh, those first disciples boldly proclaimed the good news. Jesus is alive, and he offers each one of us the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. It is an unprecedented sequence of events in the history of the world. In the 1970s, uh, an American astrophysicist by the name of Michael Hart wrote a fairly controversial book with the title The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. Now, Hart isn't a Christian. I think he probably described himself as an agnostic. And he wasn't saying whether each person on the list was good or bad. It was just a question of who had the most influence. And number one on the list wasn't Jesus. Number two on his list wasn't Jesus. Jesus came in at number three. Hart actually placed Muhammad in first position and Sir Isaac Newton in third. And Hart was asked, well, why didn't you put Jesus at number one? And this is what he said. He said, from his observation, Muhammad had far more influence over the lives of Muslims than Jesus has over the lives of Christians. So he's not even talking about Jesus' influence in the world in general. He's talking about Jesus' influence on Christians. It just doesn't seem to be as great. I don't know about you, but I really don't like the fact that someone would look at Christians and think that. Now, we can't change one man's perception of the worldwide church, but we can decide that we don't want that to be true of us. We can uh, say to ourselves, you know what, I don't want to be the kind of Christian that people look at and say, well, he's a Christian, but doesn't really make much difference to his life. We can choose to make Jesus the most influential person, force, or thing in our lives. And to be influenced by Jesus means engaging with his mission, which is spelled out at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But this is massive. I mean, if we don't feel daunted by this, I really don't think that we've heard it right. We are to go to all nations. That's everybody. And yes, some will be receptive. Some will uh, receive the gospel with joy. Uh, But many, if not most, will be indifferent or even hostile. That was true for Jesus. It was true for the first disciples. And it's true for us. And then we're to baptize them which is a sign of accepting Jesus' authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, baptism is a sign of accepting that authority. And then we've got to teach them everything 
that Jesus commanded. But that's a tall order, isn't it? I mean, Jesus had a hard enough time with 12 disciples. Uh, They continually misunderstood what Jesus was saying. They were really blockheaded for so long, they just didn't get it. When the occupants of a Samaritan town refused to welcome Jesus, James and John asked if they should call down fire from heaven and destroy the whole town. How can you spend that much time with Jesus and think that destroying a town, men, women, and children, is an appropriate response to anything? Uh, On another occasion, the disciples were arguing about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Again, how can you spend all that time with Jesus, the most humble person who ever lived, and be arguing about who's going to be the greatest? Judas, one of the twelve, betrayed Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when the mob came to seize Jesus, Peter pulled out a sword and lopped off somebody's ear. I mean, Peter was a fisherman. What was, it, what was he even doing with a sword? Completely misunderstood what was happening. And then, of course, Peter denied Jesus three times with a string of expletives. Teaching 12 disciples wasn't even easy for Jesus. Constantly, they were getting it wrong. And this instruction from Jesus doesn't mean go fill the heads of millions of people with an awareness of what the historical Jesus taught. It means teach them to live this stuff out in their daily lives. Teaching human beings the ways of God is really, really hard. And I can say that with passion because it's my vocation, but I also look at myself and realize that I'm really slow to learn. We all are. And so we've got to go. We've got to evangelize. We've got to baptize. We've got to teach. We've got to change selfish, arrogant, godless, unbelieving, sinful human beings into lovers of Jesus who obey everything that he said, except we haven't. It's Jesus who brings about that change by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we do have to play a part in that process. Jesus commanded us to play a part in that process. And this morning, rather than break that process down into its constituent parts, we're going to think more generally about what it takes to make someone a believing, baptized follower of Jesus. But before I go on, I want to point out that evangelism and discipleship, which are two sides of the same coin, really, uh, should not come at the expense of looking after the practical needs of the poor, the vulnerable, and the disadvantaged. A Christian disciple is a follower, or better still, an imitator of Jesus Christ. Does Jesus care about people's practical needs? Absolutely. Jesus is the most loving, compassionate, generous, self-giving person who ever lived, and we are called to follow his example. But it's not just his example. It's also his explicit teaching. Uh, And if we are to teach people everything that Jesus commanded, well, surely that must include the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. When the Bible talks about love, it never means a warm, fuzzy feeling. Love, in a a biblical sense, is always something that we do. So if we love our neighbor, we can't see them struggling or suffering or going without and just walk past them. So the church's mission to make disciples 
of all nations doesn't detract or distract from the imperative to love people. Reaching out to the world in love is absolutely central to Jesus' teaching. I've heard a lot of sermons about the Great Commission, and I'm never left in any doubt that I should be out there evangelizing the world, but I'm often left thinking, well, how do I do that? Where do I start? It just seems like such a massive task. So as I said, this morning we're looking at the process of what it takes to make someone a believing, baptized follower of Jesus. And we all have a part to play in that process, but I think there are a lot of things that hold us back. I think very often we feel disempowered. So this morning we're going to try and address some of those things that hold us back from making disciples of all nations. And the first thing, and this is something that many of us uh, will have thought or do think, I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. You know, when Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, the first lot of disciples didn't cease being disciples. As Christians, we are disciples of Jesus our whole lives. We do not graduate from discipleship. And so if we are waiting until we are exactly like Jesus, until we go out and make disciples, well, there's not going to be a lot of disciple making going on because none of us are going to be like Jesus this side of heaven. And we need to remember that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he was talking to a group, a body, the beginnings of the church, not a collection of individuals. Jesus is not giving any individual the entire responsibility for making converts and discipling them. He's given that responsibility to the church, to us, collectively. And within the church, we've all got different gifts. Your gifts might be serving, or teaching, or encouraging. So we're called to use our gifts to play a part in this process of bringing people in to the kingdom of God. But often the passion will come before the gift. Uh, I was about nine years old when my mum became a Christian, and she would tell me about Jesus with such passion and enthusiasm and conviction that I was enthralled. And she would talk to me at bedtime, and I never wanted those conversations uh, to end. My mum was a new Christian. Her biblical knowledge at the time was very limited. The transforming work of the Holy Spirit had only just begun, but I attribute my conversion to my mother almost exclusively. And over the years, I've watched my mum every day praying and reading the Bible. And in that time, she's grown in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. But she won her first convert when she hardly knew anything. Such is the power of the gospel. Don't wait until you feel worthy or competent. Start the work and God will give you the resources to reach the people that he wants you to reach. Next obstacle. What will people think? We're all so obsessed with what other people think of us, aren't we? If I mention Jesus, they might think I'm a bit strange. They might think I'm a weirdo or a fanatic. Well, yes, they might think that. So what? But actually, if you're generally a fairly rational, well-balanced person, I think most of you are, most of you, then they're more likely to be intrigued. But seriously, 
Are we going to allow a bit of social awkwardness to hold us back from sharing the gospel? In 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul talks about some of the hardships he endured for the sake of the gospel. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. He was whipped. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. He goes on, but I think we get the idea. We only have to look as far back as Sunday, Easter Sunday, when those atrocious, horrific bombings took place in Sri Lanka and killed hundreds of Christians just because they were worshipping Jesus. Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world, and Christians are by far the most persecuted uh, group in the world. Right now, there are 250 million Christians facing serious persecution because they know and love Jesus and they worship Jesus. And we're worried about a bit of social awkwardness. Seriously? I don't know if you've seen the American magicians, Penn and Teller. They got a show called Penn and Teller Fallus. Well, one half of the duo, Penn Gillet, he's a very vocal and outspoken atheist. And he's got a video blog, and uh, he, he did one of these blogs on Christians sharing their faith. He calls it proselytizing. Uh, and this is what he says. He said, uh, this is coming from a, from a very vocal atheist. How much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed that without a shadow of a doubt a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was coming down on you, there's a certain point where I'd tackle you. And this is more important than that. Not my words, Pendulay. And then he goes on to express his disbelief that Christians often fail to share their faith because of a bit of social awkwardness. When we stop worrying about what people think, we will find that God is able to use us in the most amazing ways. The next one, and it's closely related to what will people think, the next doubt that creeps in is, I'm not confident. I don't have the confidence to do this. But let's start by asking ourselves a question. Is it the case that we want to share our faith, but we don't have the confidence to do it? Or is it really that we're not actually that bothered about sharing our faith, and so we don't make the effort to pluck up the courage? Because if it's the first one, if we want to share our faith, but we're not confident to do it, then we need to earnestly pray that God will imbue us with that confidence and that conviction, that courage. But if deep down we recognize that we're not really that interested in sharing our faith, if we can be honest about that, then we need to pray for the desire and the confidence. But I would suggest that if the desire is strong enough, the confidence will follow. Paul, writing to Timothy, a young church leader and someone who clearly struggled with confidence, Paul wrote this to Timothy. He said, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Are we praying that God will fill us with his Holy Spirit? Are we praying for that daily? Are we praying for opportunities to serve Jesus 
and proclaim the gospel? Do we leave our houses in the morning and think, well, I wonder who God will bring me alongside today that I can just show them something of who Jesus is? Now, I do understand that some people are painfully shy. And if that's you, all this could seem especially daunting. But remember, we are working as a body. We all have a role to play in this massive task of making disciples of all nations. But make no mistake, you do have a role to play. Do you know that if you take responsibility for your own discipleship, if you make sure that you're being spiritually fed, that you're growing in the Christian faith, then sooner or later people will notice that you're different, and different in a good way. And that in itself will draw people to Jesus. You might struggle to have conversations with people about your faith, That doesn't stop you from inviting them to church or to Alpha or to a women's breakfast or whatever it might be. There are people out there who would receive the gospel with joy if only someone would invite them to hear it. There are people out there who would receive the gospel with joy and you're the only person from this church who knows them. That's worth thinking about for a moment. And regardless of our level of confidence, we are all called to disciple someone. Uh, I was once invited to give a talk at a military prison. And beforehand, I was on the phone to the local pastor who was organizing this. And he wanted to know how many people I'd be taking with me so that he could let the guard room know the numbers. And I hadn't planned on taking anyone with me. And this uh, pastor, he said to me, well, who are you discipling? And he knew that I was a fairly new Christian, but he assumed that I'd be discipling someone. He assumed that there'd be someone that I'd want to take along because it was an exciting ministry opportunity. It was an opportunity to to grow and learn and be encouraged. He assumed that I'd want to take someone along and be part of that. That really challenged me. So let me ask you this question this morning. Who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? If you're not sure, let me help you out. Are you leaders of Kids Church or 316s? If you are, then that is a group of children that you are helping to disciple. Are you a parent, a grandparent, an uncle, or an aunt? Because if you are, you have your uh, uh, first discipleship opportunity, your first discipleship responsibility right there. Are you married? Spouses uh, can disciple one another. Are you part of one of our hubs, our home groups? Yes, you come to be discipled, but you also come to help disciple the other members of the group. As it says in Proverbs, iron sharpens iron. As Christians, we all have a role to play in making disciples. The next thing that hinders us from making disciples, I haven't got time. Haven't got time for this. That's a big one, isn't it? I think most of us feel that we haven't got time to stir our tea. I don't drink tea, so I save time. I don't have to make it. I don't have to stir it. But I think it's fair to say that most of us are time poor. You might be thinking, I'm supposed to pray and read my Bible, and that's hard enough. Now I'm supposed to make disciples. But if we're saying that we don't have time to make disciples, we're actually saying that we don't have time to have any meaningful contact with other human beings. 
And if that's true, then we probably need to reorganize our lives. When I was serving in Northern Ireland, a big part of the role was to win the hearts and minds of the local population, uh, at least half of whom really didn't want British soldiers to be there. They, they hated the idea of us being there. Uh, in many cases, they hated us. And the idea was that if we treated people well and with respect and we reached out to them, then they might not like the fact that we were there, but hopefully they wouldn't want to kill us either. And we had an expression which comes from the forensics lab laboratory. And the expression is, every contact leaves a trace. Every contact leaves a trace. In other words, every time we have contact with another person, we communicate something. We leave a trace. When it comes to sharing our faith, sometimes less can be more. Don't underestimate what God can do with the right sentence said to the right person at the right time. Or the right act of kindness done for the right person at the right time, especially if they know you're doing it because you love Jesus and you love them. And even if you're a person who is really pressed for time, I would encourage you, as much as you can, make time for other people. Pause long enough with people for them to see something of Christ in you. Someone who is a Christian is in Christ, and Christ is in them. Pause long enough with people for them to be able to see something of Christ in you. The parish office is in our home, and very often when I'm working, my children will come in to see me about something. And, and when this first started happening, my uh, tendency was to kind of shoo them out as quick as I could. I thought, well, I'm working now, and later on I'll give them my full attention. But I found that I was spending an awful lot of time shooing my children out of the office. So I decided to change tack. Uh, I, I took a different approach. So every time they came in, I gave them my undivided attention. And do you know what I found? Nine times out of ten, they wanted less than a minute of my time. In fact, even as I was writing this, uh, rather appropriately, I was writing this very paragraph. And Caleb came in to tell me that he was going to do some baking with mummy. So I turned around and asked him what they were going to be baking and sort of initiated a conversation and he broke off the conversation and went racing off down the corridor because he was so excited to be doing this baking. The whole exchange lasted about 30 seconds. But the point is make time for people. Make time for people. Discipleship opportunities come up every day, frequently, and sometimes it only takes a moment. Every contact leaves a trace. Every contact gives us the opportunity to represent Jesus to someone else. And finally, the last objection to being involved in this great task of making disciples. I tried it, and it doesn't work. Have you ever tried to have a conversation about your faith, and you just felt that it went horribly wrong? You got tongue-tied. You didn't know what to say. You felt embarrassed. You could feel yourself going red. Maybe you got an adverse reaction. Anyone ever had a conversation like that? I've got to admit, I've had a lot of conversations like that. Have you ever invited someone to church, to the carol concert, to an Easter service, and they haven't come? It's disappointing, isn't it? Uh, or worse still, they say they're going to come, and then they don't. 
But you know, I don't think it would be making a pest of ourselves to invite the same person to something else a few months down the line. And that's just one person. There are plenty of people that we can invite. There are plenty of people that we can share our faith with. Jesus was rejected by lots of people. He was rejected by uh, the people of his hometown in Nazareth. He was rejected by the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, the, the, the crowd screamed and bayed for his blood, for his execution. If they said no to Jesus, you can be sure that they will say no to us. But not everybody. Not everybody will reject this message of hope and life and love. There are people out there who desperately need to hear the gospel. They might not know it yet, but they do. And often it's the last people that we would expect to come into God's kingdom. So so we shouldn't limit ourselves in terms of who we share the gospel with. We should never be thinking, oh, that person, well, they won't be interested, so I won't invite them. Invite them. Invite them. Do not be intimidated. Do not be disheartened. Do not be dismayed. Keep proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in any way that you can. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is what we are called to as a church. And it doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter whether we've been a Christian for two weeks or 20 years or our whole lives. It doesn't matter how much we know or we don't know. It doesn't matter how uh, dexterous we are with, with the Bible, the Word of God. We are all called to play a part in this. And it starts with taking our own discipleship seriously, making sure that we're being fed so that we can feed other people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so often we feel like we're not up to the job, we're not up to the task that you've given us. But we thank you that when we fix our eyes on you and your kingdom, you give us the resources that we need. You give us the skills and the gifts and the words to be able to reach other people. And Father, we pray that we will take our discipleship really seriously, not just to be disciples, but to be disciples who make disciples. Help us to to speak about you with passion and enthusiasm and life. Help us to recognize the importance of spreading the gospel and making disciples. And Father, we pray that as a church, we'll see so many lives changed and transformed by the power of your Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.